Well, as we can continue on in our time together over the summer uh, with Pastor Alex taking some time away, we have uh, a wonderful uh, batch of guest uh, preachers. And this morning, uh, our guest is no stranger to court rights. And so, uh, Reverend Carla, would you please come up and join us? Would you give Carla a round of applause as she joins us together? <laughs> I'm reminded of all those stories in the book of Acts where terrible things happen to people who get praised and lauded by uh, you know, <laughs> praise that's diverted from God, so <laughs> please don't clap. <laughs> appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the appreciation. It's great um, to be among you again today and um, to see some many uh, friends that I've come to know through, the, through my visits here and to be able to, to gather around this wonderful gift uh, we have from God in the scriptures. Uh, I'm reading today from... This is the scripture reading moment, right? Okay. Uh, from the contemporary English version, and given the text that I chose from Genesis chapter 38, I really had to look hard for uh, a text that would not offend uh, anyone with the explicitness of its language. So um, this is the contemporary English version, and it is not a word-for-word translation. It is a paraphrase, and it's, it's rather delicate. Um, but just for your information, I will at a couple of points give you what the, the Hebrew actually says. Let us hear the word of God. About that time, Judah left his brothers in the hill country and went to live near his friend Hira in the town of Adullam. While there, he met the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite man. Judah married her, and they had three sons. He named the first one Ur. She named the next one Onan. The third one was born when Judah was in Chezib, and she named him Shelah. Later, Judah chose Tamar as a wife for Ur, his oldest son, but Ur was very evil, and the Lord took his life. So Judah told Onan, it is your duty to marry Tamar and have a child for your brother. Onan knew the child would not be his, and when he had sex with Tamar, he made sure that she would not get pregnant, literally wasted his seed on the ground. The Lord wasn't pleased with Onan and took his life too. Judah did not want the same thing to happen to his son Shelah, and he told Tamar, go home to your father and live there as a widow until my son Shelah is grown. So Tamar went to live with her father. Some years later, Judah's wife died, and he mourned for her. He then went with his friend Hira to the town of Timnah, where his sheep were being sheared. Tamar found out that her father-in-law Judah was going to Timnah to shear his sheep. She also realized that Shelah was now a grown man, but she had not been allowed to marry him. So she decided to dress in something other than her widow's clothes and to cover her face with a veil. After this, she sat outside the town of Enaim on the road to Timnah. 
When Judah came along, he did not recognize her because of the veil. He thought she was a prostitute and asked her to sleep with him. She asked, What will you give me if I do? One of my young goats, he answered. What will you give me to keep until you send the goat, she asked. What do you want, he asked in return. The ring on that cord around your neck was her reply. I also want the special walking stick you have with you. He gave them to her, they slept together, and she became pregnant. After returning home, Tamar took off the veil and dressed in her widow's clothes again. Judah asked his friend Hira to take the goat to the woman so that, she could, so that he could get back the ring and the walking stick, but she wasn't there. Hira asked the people of Enaim, where is the prostitute who sat along the road outside your town? There has never been one here, they answered. Hira went back and told Judah, I couldn't find the woman, and the people of Enaim said no prostitute had ever been there. If you couldn't find her, we'll just have to keep the things I gave her, Judah answered, and we'd better forget about the goat or else we'll look like fools. Around three months later, someone told Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has behaved like a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Drag her out of town and burn her to death. Judah shouted. As Tamar was being dragged off, she sent someone to tell her father-in-law, the man who gave me this ring, this cord, and this walking stick is the one who got me pregnant. Those are mine, Judah admitted. She is a better person than I am. Literally, she is more in the right than I, or she is innocent. It, the child, is from me. Because I broke my promise to let her marry my son, Shelah. After this, Judah never slept with her again. Tamar gave birth to twins, but before either of them was born, one of them stuck a hand out of her womb. The woman who was helping tied a red thread around the baby's hand and explained, this one came out first. At once, his hand went back in, and the other child was born first. The woman then said, what an opening you have made for yourself. So they named the baby Perez. When the brother with the red thread was born, they named him Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit of God, would you come among your people now and share with us this, your gift of word written and give us the additional gift of your word made alive in us and in this time and place. Grant that I may speak faithfully now in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There are some passages of Scripture that you never hear preached. Sometimes it's because as modern people we find them boring. Top among the boring passages are those complete chapters sometimes that are full of begats, like the genealogy that begins the Gospel of Matthew. Many an enthusiastic convert to Christianity has had their resolve to read the Bible dampened by the fact that on page 1, chapter 1 of the New Testament is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. 
Actually, the songwriter Andrew Peterson has a song on his Christmas album entitled Matthew's Begats, which is a lot of fun, but typically we don't include Matthew's genealogy in our Christmas carols or in our Advent sermons. But that might be a mistake, because what genealogies do, once you know a few of those people who are named and their stories, is gather this great cloud of witnesses to surround the last descendant. Witnesses to the particular kind of story that that child is born into. In Jesus' case, a story of salvation, a story where God's unexpectedly going to crown his people with honor instead of disgrace. The main plot of Matthew begins in verse 18 with the account of Mary's premarital disgrace, which the good Joseph is prepared to pass over with less indignation than would be his right. But Matthew makes clear that God is involved here, and so things are not as they may seem. Mary is more in the right than Joseph, and a judgy world would suppose her to be. And that is her point of connection with certain other women in the history of Israel. It's not usual for ancient genealogies to include the names of the mothers as well as the fathers, so we should notice it when Matthew's genealogy includes the names of four women who have played a role in the history of Israel before we get to Mary and to Jesus. And what we should also notice is what kind of women these are. Tamar, a kind of black widow who poses as a prostitute and contrives to get pregnant by her father-in-law when she grows tired of waiting for legitimacy to be granted to her as a wife and mother in Israel. Rahab, an actual prostitute and a woman of Canaan. Ruth, a penniless woman of Moab, who nonetheless takes the lead in her courtship with her eventual husband, Boaz. And Bathsheba, possibly a Hittite like her husband, Uriah, whose beauty leads King David into adultery and murder before she is legitimized as his wife and the mother of his royal successor, Solomon. All these women are marginal figures whose stories verge on the scandalous. And yet, like Mary, God reverses their shame and uses them positively in the unfolding story of redemption. Now, I actually have preached on the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew before, but I have never preached on the story of Tamar. I guess that not many of you here will have heard a sermon on the figure of Tamar. That's because Tamar's story falls into another category of biblical passages passed over for the purposes of preaching, not because they are boring, but because they are anything but. Genesis 38 is among those stories that have been considered either too sexy or too violent for nice-minded Christians to reflect upon while sitting in church. I remember in university, I had a flatmate who was the only daughter of a family of four brothers. Her parents had been missionaries with one of the more conservative Presbyterian denominations they have in the States. And when they returned to the U.S. to raise their children, they were constantly having to filter their children's television viewing, which was full of sex and violence and strong language. 
But they couldn't exactly forbid the boys the Bible, and so my flatmate recalled her brothers just scouring the Bible for the kind of content that would normally be forbidden to them by their parents and giggling with great glee when they came upon a story like this one from Genesis 38. My belief is that if a story such as this has remained in our scriptures across the millennia, with so many good reasons to filter it out, and so many long-nosed, um, correct people, you know, trying to suggest reasons why it shouldn't be there. It must be for some important reason, more important reason than to provide giggles for the pre-adolescent boys. But then, maybe not. Perhaps it is precisely at the pre-adolescent boys, or maybe at the adults, male and female, who remain arrested at that stage in their spiritual development that the message of this story is aimed. Because it seems to me that it's a story all about growing into moral agency and learning to take responsibility. In any case, I think that all of the four Old Testament women in Jesus' genealogy do carry a message for us about what life with God entails. And so I want to prepare four sermons this is the first one on Tamar, and whenever I get invited to preach somewhere again, I will continue with Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. So let's look at the story. Verses 1 to 5 tell us about Judah's own marriage and offspring. But maybe we need some background on who this figure Judah is. He's the great-grandson of Abraham, whose family is the one God chose to bless all the nations of the earth. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. And so far, his three elder brothers have washed out pretty badly as likely-looking candidates for bringing spiritual blessing to humankind. Reuben is a rebellious son who asserts his power over Jacob by sleeping with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Simeon and Levi instigate a terrible act of retaliatory violence against the men of Shechem for the rape of their sister Dina. You see why this story is not for the under-14s. And so what about Judah? Judah isn't perfect, especially at the beginning of this story, but he does become a more responsible character by the end. And so it is of his descendants that Jacob upon his deathbed, will prophesy, the scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, Judah's tribe is to provide the line of kings within Israel, everlastingly, whatever that means. And this is one of the important ways in which the family of Abraham, and specifically the line of Judah, will bless all the nations of the earth. Judah's tribe, together with the tribe of Benjamin, is also one of the only two that survive, and so there's a kind of endorsement there upon Judah. Well, Judah has gotten himself a wife, and he has three sons with her, Er, Onan, and Shelah. He has also arranged for Tamar as a bride for Er, his eldest. There is no reason to assume that Tamar, like two and possibly three of the four women named in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, is an ethnic and religious outsider. She is probably an Israelite. 
Certainly her knowledge and observance of the religious laws of Israel is superior, as Judah admits, to Judah's own. And if the two sons born to her and to Judah are more God-fearing than Judah's first two sons born to his Canaanite wife, then this may well be down to the religious education they get and the faith example they get from Tamar. Verse 7 simply describes Er as very evil and says that the Lord took his life. Tamar's life, married to wicked Er, must not have been all that much fun, but with his death, her life became all at once much more difficult. In the ancient world, it was recognized that childless widows were of all people most to be pitied. They had left their own family to join their husbands, but with no sons, they had no form of economic security in a very insecure place within the family. They would not be an attractive prospect for any man in search of a wife with all the younger and more eligible virgins about because they had not given their first husband a child, and so maybe they were barren. Nor could they legally remarry until they were formally released. But God's law provided an elegant solution to this plight of these discarded, forgotten, superfluous women Levirate marriage. True, it wouldn't be set down in law until Deuteronomy chapter 25, till more than 400 years after the time of our story. But clearly, the custom is already well developed. I say it was an elegant solution because it had the potential not only to reverse the fortunes, economic and social, of the childless widow by allowing her to have a child from her marriage even after her husband's death. And this is actually the main way that um, it's spoken of in Scripture. It actually had the advantage of serving the interests of the dead husband. It's spoken of more often in Scripture not as providing offspring for the woman, but as raising up a child for the dead husband. And this is actually... uh, a way of continuing the line of the dead so that their name may not be cut off from a share in the hope and heritage of Israel. Now that is not a temporal kind of concern, but a spiritual concern with how life can graciously spring up from the stump of someone who has gone to his grave without issue. But how can these gracious exchanges of life for death and abundance and hope for poverty and despair be achieved when death and the natural hope for such things between a husband and a wife have ended? Well, not by nature, but by grace. Through the intervention of one who will act as a redeemer, a substitute, in fact, a sexual surrogate for the dead husband. It was usually a brother, but another kinsman could take up the role of levier if there was no brother available or willing. It was a sacrificial thing to act as a levier for your brother. You would have to give up your rights of paternity to your own biological child and part of your inheritance to this extra heir in order to redeem life from death for your dead brother. You would have to die to self, 
so that your brother by this means might live. I hope in those sentences you're hearing echoes of the work of Christ on the cross. Because I believe that apart from the real concern of our God for the economic and social misery of childless widows, God was also very purposeful in placing early in Israel's history this foreshadowing picture so that when it came to Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, we would intuitively know, like intuitively know how you use a tablet. We would intuitively know that this was to provide for us who were dead in our trespasses and sins the gracious means of ongoing and eternal life. If I'm right that the levier is a kind of Christ figure placed way back in the history of Israel, it would certainly explain why in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Levirate marriage plays such a prominent role. Not only is Perez the son of Judah and Tamar the result of a leveritical, if that's a word, union, but Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth, was also born by this gracious means. Without understanding Levirate marriage as a God-given, gracious, and therefore rather noble and important provision, perhaps not for all time, perhaps not for our time, but certainly in the early days of Israel, then we'll tend to think of this custom as just a weird, slightly kinky thing that ancient people did. And then we'd miss how very important it is that the men in this story live up to their responsibility to act as levier for Tamar. When we consider the character of Onan and the character of Judah, it's not because Onan practiced some divinely approved, disapproved form of sexuality that he commits sin, or that Judah sleeps with a woman he believed to be a prostitute and he commits sin that way. It is because Onan rebelliously, selfishly, greedily, unjustly, and hypocritically withheld from Tamar the real blessing it was, in with, it was within his power and God's design for him to give her to improve her lot in life. And because Judah similarly dodged the responsibilities he bore to Tamar as head of his tribe, placing her in a very difficult position out of fear and superstition, neglect and unconcern, and fear of social shame more than fear of the Lord, he too is accounted guilty. Onan and his father Jacob are both men who dodge their responsibilities, but Onan is judged much more harshly than Jacob because he is not just a fearful, passive, and negligent man. He is an out-and-out rebel, yet not a rebel who is out in the open, a devious and calculating one whose entire motivation is selfishness and greed. He knows his religious duty. His father has told him to see to it. So to keep up appearance, he makes sure he's seen going into Tamar's tent, but he's determined not to let their sexual encounters result in a pregnancy. And this is entirely to keep his own economic advantage at the expense of Tamar 
And Tamar is much poorer and more advantaged, disadvantaged than he is to begin with, of course. Onan would fit well the description that Jesus levies at the scribes and Pharisees, a hypocrite and one who devours the widow's houses. Onan has done the math, and he knows that according to ancient inheritance laws, Judah's estate would have been divided into four if all three of his sons had lived. As the eldest, Er would inherit the double portion, and Onan and Shelah would each inherit a quarter. If Onan fathered a child as a levier for Er, the child would inherit at least one-fourth and possibly one-half as child of the firstborn, of Judah's estate. But if Er remained childless, Judah's estate would be divided into three, with Onan as the surviving, eldest surviving son inheriting two-thirds, and Shelah the remaining third. So there's a big difference between a quarter or even a half and two-thirds. Onan is the opposite of the self-emptying Christ, preferring others' needs before his own. As I think about the sin of Onan, I'm trying to remember not only the last time that I did something for someone else that made a good thing happen for them, because I guess that's not too hard to think of. But the last time that I did something for someone else that made a good thing happen for them at considerable cost to me, there's probably something wrong if the majority of those who claim to be followers of Christ in our particular culture and generation never have to pour themselves out, never have to experience a loss because someone else, a less advantaged person, gains the benefit and is full. Onan is sterile, but that doesn't mean that he lacks agency. He uses his agency to deny his responsibility. And with someone as willfully rebellious as that, God's only answer is summary judgment. With Jacob, there's a bit more hope, because he is more of a mixed bag of virtue and vice. The fault for which the Bible does not absolve Jacob is his failure to attend to Tamar in her predicament. As head of his family, he is responsible for her. But he is not mindful enough of this responsibility. After Onan follows Er down to death, Judah knows he ought to give his youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar. Verse 11 tells us explicitly why he doesn't. It is out of a superstitious feeling that Tamar is unlucky. All her husbands have died, and he has only this one son left. But what God's law asks of him is clear. You must give that son. If Judah had had the faith of Abraham or the compassion of God for the plight of the widow, he would not have withheld his only son. But Judah lacks both that heroic quality of faith and that capacity for expansive sacrificial love because he is driven by fear. I think even across so many years, Judah is quite relatable at this point in the story. In a recent conversation with my mother, she confessed that she's been putting off calling her cousin, who is currently battling stage four cancer, because she feels awkward. 
I said, I'm sure that feeling, that feeling of having become someone to avoid does not contribute helpfully to the man's already difficult process of dying. Think of what good a call from you might do for him, because it's not about you. But as people of imperfect character, it's natural enough for the specter of loss and calamity in someone else's life to make us hold more tightly to what is ours, to treat them like what they have done is blameworthy, so maybe the bad thing won't come nigh us. Instead, we should be more empathetic and kindly toward them, but the the opposite reaction by people driven with fear is to retrench. Judah buys some time by saying that Sheila is still quite young and that he will give him to Tamar to marry when he is old enough. Meanwhile, she should live as a widow in her father's house. Now, this consigns Tamar to a terrible state of limbo. It means that she's not free to remarry, even if she could find another husband because she's still understood as belonging through marriage to the household of Judah. And during all those years of waiting, while Shela grows into an adolescent and then into a man, she must live chaste while she is so painfully aware that her dowry is dwindling as she spends it for her maintenance and her eggs are getting old. The Levirate laws actually provide for the case where a father's only remaining son is under the age of 10. They thought of this. They say that in this instance, the father himself can become the levier. So Judah could lawfully have impregnated Tamar years before she tricked him into it. If he didn't want to do that, his other option was to make a solemn declaration before the other elders in Israel that no levier from his kinsmen could be found, and this would have released her to remarry. But because the matter was not nearly as urgent a priority for him as it was for Tamar, and maybe because he was afraid of the second option because of the neighbors, he just left her to wait and went on about his own life. Now, in the intervening years, Judah's wife dies. And interestingly, the biblical author does not say that this is a judgment from God against Judah for his forgetfulness of Tamar. I think the whole purpose of mentioning her death is to explain the state of comfortlessness that Judah was in when he went sheep shearing, and in a way to emphasize his honor. For Judah is not a totally reprehensible character, even in the beginning. Although succumbing to the wayside temptress is something that the book of Proverbs tells us uh, that those wanting to be holy men should not do, the Genesis author wants to signal that Judah does respect the laws of God. He does not adulterate his marriage bed by habitually making transactions of this kind. His wife is dead. And by picking a woman he finds by the roadside where no married women or virgins would ever be, he at least steers clear of the sins of adultery and fornication. He also deals with her honestly and fairly, at least I assume that a young goat was the going price for a sexual favor in those days. She seems a pretty savvy businesswoman in, in knowing to ask for the surety. And um, he gives her the items that she asks for as a guarantee of future payment. And he sends his friend Hira back, it sounds like pretty promptly, in order to settle the debt. 
I notice he sends his friend. He doesn't go himself, asking for a friend. Who was that woman who usually sits by the, the roadside? And when he can't find her and nobody in town knows her, he um, goes back to Judah. And Judah is anxious to write a line under the whole episode rather than be seen scouring the streets of this neighboring town for a prostitute dragging this ridiculous little goat behind him. And so Judah must feel that there is some shame that attaches to his action or that he, a dignified man, would look ridiculous in the eyes of the neighbors. And this fear of man, fear of humankind rather than of God is what, what again moves his action. Again, when Judah hears that Tamar has become pregnant while well, she's supposed to be remaining a chaste widow in her father's house, um, in, in terms of her character also, she doesn't make a habit of this, stand, sitting by the wayside. It, it makes the point that she goes back to her father's house and dresses again in her widow's weeds. But um, he responds to what righteousness requires uh, much more swiftly when he hears the scandalous tale about her than he does in uh, setting, up, setting her up with a suitable levier. I wonder how swiftly Judah would stack up the bonfire for Tamar's execution if he wasn't aware of all of the eyes of the neighbors upon him waiting and watching for what he will do. What do you think? Actually, I think Judah would be swift to gather the kindling, probably in any case, because unlike Ruth's husband, Boaz, or Mary's husband, Joseph, his kind of righteousness does not seem to be tempered with much kindness or mercy. Also, like his descendant David, and maybe like all of us, Judah's moral vision is 20-20 when it comes to judging someone else's sin, the abstract case, but not where it's about us. But this is altogether consistent with having the hugest of blind spots where our own sin is concerned. And I think it's typical of people who have a servile fear of God rather than a balanced understanding of God as the author of justice and of grace. Uh, because they, they want to um, avoid that sin by putting it on the other person. The heat is off them. Remember the prophet Daniel tells David about a rich man who has taken the sole pet lamb of a poor man to have for his own flocks, and David immediately flies out indignantly. Who is that man? Just let me deal with him. And that's the moment when Nathan lowers the boom and says, you are the man. I've been telling you the story about how you, the rich man, took the wife of the poor man Uriah in adultery under the guise of a parable. And now you can see the offense of your own sin even as God sees it. Practicing a kind of hard righteousness which reserves for others all the justice and awards to ourselves all the mercy is also an inversion of the pattern set by Christ. Christ took to himself the brunt of God's justice while giving to us the tenderness of God's wide mercy. The moment where Tamar is able to say, the man who gave me this ring, this cord, and this walking stick is the one who got me pregnant. Smart woman. Uh, is a very Nathan-like 
confrontation, isn't it? And Judah's statement of confession and admission of where all the merits lie is as thorough and heartfelt as David's Psalm 51, the confessional psalm uh, of this greater-than-Judah descendant. She is more in the right than I, Judah says, because I broke my promise to let her marry my son, Sheila. Here at last, Judah is taking responsibility. He is naming the situation and his own role in setting up that whole thing, which was the springboard for all of Tamar's unorthodox actions and intrigues. If he had just acted conscientiously by either performing the role of Levier for her himself as soon as Obed died, she would never have had to trick him into it. But he's right that she knows her Levirite law and has committed no sin. She has taken an eligible levir. And neither do they commit any sin of incest after the birth of the twins because, again, the biblical author is careful to tell us that Judah never had sex with her again. The Levirate laws could, be set as, could set aside the incest laws for the exceptional purpose of conceiving a child, but after that goal was accomplished, the regular rules would apply, and it was still taboo within Israel for fathers-in-law to sleep with their daughters-in-law. All along, I've been saying that the Levirates served the good of Tamar by redeeming her miserable position of being a forgotten, superfluous woman with no resources and no standing. But in fact, she is greater than any of the men in this story for her exercise of agency and her taking of responsibility not to cry the victim at the hardness of her circumstances, but to take action and to do so before God and uh, under the laws of God. So at this point, at her vindication, when she's pregnant with these children, when she's giving birth, she stands in a position of real power and generosity because she is able to give Judah the same number of sons that God has taken from him. And one suspects that Perez and Zerah are way better sons anyway than wicked Ur and Onan who displeased the Lord. It's clear from the very first pages of the Bible that God wants us to be responsible. Where are you, he says to Adam after he sins. Where is your brother, he says to Cain after he kills Abel. Adam engages in the first buck passing. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. And Eve, not missing a beat, follows suit. It wasn't me, it was the snake. And Cain gives the classic wrong answer to the question of responsibility. I'm not my brother's keeper, am I? Yes, you are, is the implied answer of the whole second table of commandments that addresses the consideration we owe to our neighbors. Through the stick and the carrot of law and means of grace, God keeps placing us on those scales of judgment and calling us up before him. Law shows us the trouble we create for ourselves in the world and for the fabric of divine human relationship when we sin. And grace shows us preeminently in the life of Christ the better way that we were created for. 
Again and again, we invert the pattern of Christ. Like Onan, if we were upright in our responsibilities, we could bring so much good into the lives of others. But we do not seek this as often as we are preoccupied with our own good and prevented by the advantage that we see in retaining what we have and the cost of giving it up. Is there anyone from whom you are withholding a good that is yours to grant? Is it because it might cost you in the currencies of dignity or awkwardness or some other form of sacrifice? Do the thing. Be the agent. You are a child of Abraham, blessed in order to be a blessing and a follower of Christ, blessed with grace upon grace. And like Judah, we often have a fear of the wrong kind that counteracts those courageous qualities of faith and mercy and love that we need in order to have a strong character. Our fear of bad consequences, our fear of what others will think of us. We use all kinds of tactics to hide from God and from other people in this frame of mind. And we like it when others are made to bear the brunt of God's exacting justice because then the heat's off us and we're all too clear-sighted and avid about what others deserve while insisting that our own actions are excusable or understandable and therefore worthy of leniency. Judah is a work in progress. He learns a lot through his teacher, uh, Tamar. We know this because he is actually the first figure in Scripture that makes an acknowledgement of accountability for personal sin. And although his neglect of his responsibilities to Tamar will not be his last sin, he's actually one of the brothers of Joseph that sell Joseph into slavery. But later he again takes responsibility for that sin by being the one to volunteer as a surety for Benjamin. Judah's pass-fail record is always hit and miss, but you know, there is one of his descendants, and one of Tamar's descendants too, who never inverts the pattern of righteousness, who always gives us what is good and necessary. And even gives us what is good and necessary at the ultimate personal cost. There is one, a descendant of Judah and of Tamar, who takes to himself what our sins deserve so that we can enjoy mercy, immense and free. Thanks be to God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.